Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. All right, well, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, which is a book that was, or it's a biography of Jesus that was penned by John Mark, kind of as an eyewitness account from Peter, who was the pastor of this Roman church, who's now been crucified upside down. And you have this church that's hiding for their lives because they're under persecution from Emperor Nero. And so he's penning this, and and it's now taken a turn. The whole time, the question that's been coming up is, who is Jesus? And so that's what we're calling this series, Who's Jesus? Who does Jesus reveal himself to be? And so we have to be thinking about the original audience that was there when Jesus was giving these things, and then the audience that it was first penned to, that were hiding for their lives in the catacombs under persecution. And then as we sit here today, what does that mean for our life? And so this has kind of been the challenge we've been walking through. Who is Jesus? And really, what does that mean for us? Because I think that there's this disconnect often that we experience being you know, 2,000 years later and removed from these stories and from those experiences. And so as we read this, we begin to see what Jesus is trying to do. He's taking his disciples, as well as those who are in the catacombs, as well as you and I, through this masterclass of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Rabbi Jesus? What does it mean when life isn't going necessarily according to plan or when you had all these hopes and expectations and it's not lining up with what you had hoped and expected for? And so Jesus is then walking with the disciples in this story, which is a very real, like this is what he walked through in his life, but how it's penned and how it's authored is to also tell the story of what it means to say, this is who you are, Jesus, and this is what it means to follow you. And so Jesus in this Mark chapter 10, if you guys have your Bibles, you can turn there, but Jesus here is, he's painting a picture. He's trying to contrast two different kingdoms, the idea of what we think versus the idea and reality of what it is. And so there's this, there's this painting um, by Filippo Lippi. He's this Italian Renaissance painter from the 15th century. It's called The Virgin and Child, and it's with St. Jerome and Dominic. Um, it was hanging in London's National Gallery. And um, Robert Cumming, he was this art critic, and, and he just noticed what most art critics have noticed about this painting specifically, is how it's just a little wonky, right? It's a little off, it's a little weird. It, kind of the perspective is shifty and the way that the, the mountains in the background, they kind of look like they're about to spill out of the painting. And the people who are praying, St. Jerome and Dominic, they're a little awkwardly bent over and Mary's not even looking like at the right place. And so they all like look at this painting and they're like, this is weird. Like, he was just a little off when he wrote this or when he painted this. And so as Robert was just staring at this painting, he began to realize this, maybe the perspective of the painting isn't off, but maybe my perspective is off. And then he realized quickly that this was never, this wasn't commissioned to be hung in a museum. This was commissioned to be at the altar to facilitate a time of prayer. And so in this public space, this this renowned critic gets on his knees in prayer and looks up, and from that new perspective, looking down up at the painting, he's now able to see it's not awkward at all. It was actually created to be from that position, from that perspective. Everything fit in place. Mary's looking down at him. There's not an awkward kind of leaning over in prayer. And it was from that place, from his knees in prayer, that he was able to see a different perspective, and so it is with us. See, 
we have a perspective, and this is what N.T. Wright famously calls, um, we have our kingdom and then what he calls the upside down kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, this different perspective. And if I could be so bold to maybe challenge N.T. Wright, I know, it's like he's like an icon, I don't think I can do that. I know what he's saying, but this is what I think I would maybe challenge and shift it to is actually the right side up kingdom. And the reason for that is because Jesus created everything a way, a, a, with goodness as a part of it. And now we live in an upside down kingdom where the things aren't how they're supposed to be, where good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. We're in a broken age where there's injustice and devastation and sickness, not how that God had created the kingdom originally. So we're in the upside down kingdom. And Jesus then is introducing the right side up kingdom. And this is what he's doing with his disciples. This is what he's doing with us. He's saying you need to shift your perspective. You're looking at it with this lens. And if you get, and I love like just that imagery of on our knees in prayer, we can have the perspective to see the kingdom as it should be. And so Jesus now is walking with his apprentices on the road to Jerusalem to unveil what this kingdom is like, the right side up kingdom. And he's telling them plainly, look, I'm going to go die. I'm walking to Jerusalem to die. He says, he says this plainly, but they don't even get that he, that he's going to die yet. And even worse, they don't understand why he's going to die. Jesus has been telling them plainly, he's, I'm headed this way, but they don't understand why. So 10, 42 through 45, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Or must, yeah, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And, and I think oftentimes my perspective much like your perspective, has asked certain questions with whatever presuppositions we bring. And I think one of them that maybe you've asked this question, maybe you're asking this question, and if not you, you have friends that are or will ask this question. This is relevant for all of us. But when we think about the life of Jesus and Him introducing this right-side-up kingdom, you have to then come to the conclusion, why did Jesus have to die? Why doesn't God just forgive everyone, right? He's God. He's all-powerful. Why doesn't He just forgive a sacrifice? Really? Like, what? why? I feel like that's a bit archaic. Is there not another way? Like, why did it have to go down like this? And so we, like the disciples, who obviously were off-put by this idea of Jesus dying, they did not get it. We need a perspective shift. And so Jesus then sandwiches these stories in Mark chapter 10, where he, he kind of gives us this affirmation sandwich. I love when Trisha and I need to like, say something difficult, kind of start with a positive, this is what it looks like, and then we kind of say the hard thing, and then we kind of reaffirm. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving like this, here's what it is, here's the problem that he introduced with two stories, and he says, but here's what it is again. So he kind of sandwiches it a little bit. This is what the journey of Jesus is. And so he gives us the answer, he shows us the problem, and then he reveals the solution. And so the answer, he says, is little children. Verse 10, uh, 13 through 16, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. I love seeing the things that make Jesus mad. And he said to them, let the little children come to me 
And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Now I'm about to have a child, and I've seen many children. I know there's a lot wrong with children, right? There's a lot that we don't want to exemplify. Now what he's not saying is you need to have a spiritually childish or immature faith, right? He he actually wants us to grow up in our faith. But what he's saying is, in this metaphor, there are things about children, the way they receive, the way that they're dependent, the way that they just believe and expect to be loved and listened to, that there's a key to the kingdom of God. So hold on to that because we're going to get back to that at the very end. And then we get into the problem. There's this rich young ruler. And the whole problem with this guy is he's closed-hearted. Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus answers him and he says, you know, you love your father and mother. And, you know, he goes through the Ten Commandments. He leaves a few of them out, but he goes through rules. Now, if, I re- if you're like me reading this story, it's actually a bit frustrating because I'm, I'm like, wait, what? Like, I thought we we're saved by grace through faith. Like, I thought there's nothing we can do. It's what Christ has done for us, right? And that is all true. But what that means is we're kind of inputting our presuppositions, our prejudices, that we think that what he's talking about is how do I get into heaven when I die? But when they talked about eternal life back then, N.T. Wright says this, that it's, it's not about timelessness or an otherly worldly life, so to speak. It's a life of the age to come where everything is made new. He's not asking, how do I get into heaven when I die? He's asking, how do I experience this new quality of life, this, this life of the age to come, you know, where everything's going to be made new, there's no more sickness or pain. How do I experience that new quality of life? How do I experience this age to come? And this was a common question back then. And essentially they were asking you, what's your, what's kind of your interpretation of the laws, of the Mosaic law? And so Jesus then answers in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that Jesus looks at and loves. You ever been seen or noticed by someone and you're in this place of doubt or confusion or frustration or you're broken and you just, you're really seen. And I love Jesus sees you in the same way we saw this man and is overcome, filled with love. And then he says, with love, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, what I want to highlight is because I, I read this and someone's like kind of cringe a bit because I'm like, man, is Jesus saying that we all need to like sell everything we have, give to the poor, and then we can follow him? Like what is, that seems, again, legalistic. Does he have a, a grudge against riches? And the, what I want to highlight, this is not a normative command. Nowhere else in all of the autobiography or the biographies of Jesus in all of Scripture does it talk about doing this. So Jesus isn't giving this normative command. Actually, if you look throughout Scripture and throughout Jesus' life, he was funded by wealthy women. Um, Holler at the women, you know, killing it. Jesus' tomb was donated from a wealthy man, right? Like, so Jesus wasn't against riches. The problem with this man was not that he had riches, but it's that riches had him. It's... That he was asking to get into the kingdom, but Jesus wanted the kingdom to get into this man. 
And the thing is that he had an attachment to money. We talked about this last week, but an attachment is something that you cling to. It's not that desire is bad, but it's do you need this in order to be happy? And this attachment had a grip on him and it was hindering him from freedom. See, for us, it might not be money. But what is it that guides our emotions? What is it that wakes us up in the morning? That drives us, that holds our thoughts and our attention? What can we not let go? What impacts, like when we feel it in our body and in our gut, what, what do we feel like we need in order to be happy? What essentially is at your center? Scripture calls this idols. Psychology would call this attachments. But what is it that is guiding our lives that's at our center that isn't God? And so Jesus looks at this man with love and says, there's something else sitting on the throne of your life. And if you notice, this man walks away sad when Jesus says these things. And I wonder if it's the same thing with every idol and every attachment that we have, everything that's offering us a quality of life that's not Jesus. It'll offer everything. It'll say, this is what will give you pleasure. This is what will give you life. This is what will satisfy you. This is what will give you meaning. This is it. And yet at the end of the day, it never delivers and you always walk away sad. And so Jesus looks at this man with love and he says, no, I want you to ditch that because with me is there's a different quality of life. What's the attachment that's enslaving you from freedom, from this quality of life with Jesus? And Paul says, When we give ourselves to Jesus, the fruit of our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. He goes on and on, the fruit of the Spirit. What he's saying is when you have these other attachments, you don't see this fruit in your life. You don't see these things oozing out of you, but when you find yourself giving it all to Jesus, and it doesn't mean you sell all your things, but if it's an attachment, Jesus is asking for it. See, he was close-hearted. And then we move on and it goes to James and John, the other kind of problematic story in, in Mark 10. So they weren't close-hearted, they were glory-minded. And it says this in 35, When James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever you ask or whatever we ask. And you ever like walk up to someone and you're like, Hey, I just, I'm going to ask you something, but I need you to say yes. You're like, just, I need to know what you're going to ask me first. And I love that they're like, Jesus, tell, you need to do whatever we tell you to do. And so Jesus is like, what do you want me to do? And they replied, well, let's let one of us sit at your right hand and the other in your left hand in your glory. Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking because he knows that means his death. His glory is the cross. He's like, you don't get it. Can you drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of the cross that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Yep, is what they say. We can, they answered. I love, it's just, it's just comedic. Like you have to read scripture and realize the comedy of it. Jesus is funny. This is hilarious. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Essentially saying you are going to die. There is going to be persecution coming your way. And then go down to verse 41. Then the 10 heard about this. They became indignant with James and John. I love that the, the other 10 disciples were probably like, dang it. Why don't we think of that? Like we could have, we could sit next to Jesus like that. Wow, we're kicking themselves all mad. But then Jesus uses this as a spring off point to really what we want to hit home in this message. He actually uses the problematic glory minded disciples to hit on what the kingdom's like. Again, going back to receiving it like a child. And he says, you see, there's these two stories. You're close hearted, you're kingdom, you're glory minded. And I need you to have this perspective shift. 
you're looking at the painting with this angle that's not the kingdom. You need to have the kingdom that's of service. He says, guys, you've been following me for a bit. You're still not getting it. And so he says, believe me, it's better to see from this downward angle. It's better. You can actually see the kingdom from this different place. He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, the way of life, the way of the kingdom, of a different quality of life, the way that God's going to accomplish his work in the world is always going to come through sacrificial, self-giving love. But I think we're often tempted to kind of bracket that part out of the Bible. See, we're kind of like, no, 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 I can do it through my energy. I can do it through my power, through my wealth, through my control, through my force. Right? If I pull this lever, if I do this, I can kind of bully my way. We're just kind of like, oh, you know, and we're just kind of push our way through. And we kind of think that that's what revival is. And honestly, as I kind of say, I'm like, I, I want to see revival. I believe that we'll see revival. Just people who, who are caught into the kingdom of God, following him, that we're going to see homelessness decrease. We're going to see addictions decrease, marriages restored. I believe all of that, but it's not going to be by us taking back anything. It's going to be by us laying down everything laying down our lives in self-giving love. This is the way of the cross. This is what Jesus is getting at. It's not through the machinery of power, but of love and the way of the cross. And so Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. You can't do it on your own, but with God, it's possible. And I, we've heard that, that said, and we kind of use it to say how we're going to win. You know, the Padres are going to win the World Series. You know, with man, it's impossible, right? Except for the few trades that we just have. But with, with God, it's totally possible. It's like, that's not what it's about. It's about getting into the kingdom of God. We can't do it on our own. We need a savior. And so he says, I give my life as a ransom for many. I've been listening to Tim Keller a lot. And Tim Keller kind of goes into what he would call, quote unquote, the successful world religions. It's kind of gross to talk about it that way. Um, but what are the ones that, that have made it, right? That, that when they started, they're continuing on to this day and there's mass and influence behind them. Again, it kind of feels gross to talk about it that way. But you look at it and he says, Moses died at an old age surrounded by his nation. Confucius died in his 70s and he was surrounded by his disciples. The Buddha died in his 80s in serenity. He was surrounded by his disciples. Muhammad died full of years as the ruler of the United Arabia. Right? To some degree, all of these successful religious leaders were persecuted, resisted, exiled in some cases, but all of them overcame their enemies. They were all successful. They were full of years. And then there's like hundreds and thousands of unsuccessful ones that you haven't heard of because they never launched. And it's because they ended quickly with their leader dying and being crushed. Except for maybe David, um, David Koresh of the Branch Davidians from Waco, Texas. And that's only because it was recent, because there's a Netflix series on it, and because Chip and Joanna Gaynor are from Waco, right? Like that's the only reason why we know of that one. But Jesus died a premature death. At the age of 33, his disciples were scattered everywhere, except for a few women. He was crushed and it looked like a weakness. He was categorically in the unsuccessful section of world religions. So we have to ask the question, what made this Jesus movement, what they called the way, different? Why did it take off? And I say this is as, as a historical fact, not as my opinion, but 
every one of Jesus' disciples were completely changed. Again, not as my opinion. This is something that is documented. They were all completely changed. They went from close-hearted. They went from glory-minded. They went from all this, like, you know, many times being just dim-witted to having this shift where the cross moved from a proof of defeat to a badge of honor. They moved from being afraid to having this bottomless joy. They moved to having a consultation for absolutely anything. They went through all of life in difficulty. You could be in the catacombs in Rome fearing for your life and yet you can be consoled because of the cross. What shifted it for them? What shifts it for us? Why did Jesus have to die? Right? They gave up their riches, they gave up their life, they gave up their thirst for glory. It was such a source of power and joy in their lives, the cross was, that they became the most influential. They were flipped upside down and inside out. And I think it was because they were moved not just knowing that Jesus died, but they were moved to know why Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? And the key to this is in that text. It says he gave his life as a ransom. For many as a ransom. See, when we think about ransom, I always think of, um, you know, all the movies that have, you know, that are all action-based and it's about a kidnap and so you have to pay a ransom in order to get that person back or that thing back. And so, and that kind of encompasses a bit, but in Jesus' day, the word ransom was more, it had a way more robust connotation. The word lutron in Greek, the word for ransom, took its origin from the practice of warfare which means that there was a price paid during the, uh, for a prisoner of war to be brought out of captivity and from slavery. And we don't, they didn't have prisoner of war camps back then, and so you were either killed in war or you were brought to be uh, forced into slave and bondage labor, and you were only set free if someone paid a high price. This is what Ransom is talking about. So there were two components. One was a debt was paid. There's a debt paid to free you from captivity. And then the second one is the condition of experiencing the debt being paid is freedom. So it's debt being paid and freedom. Jesus came to pay our debts and to free hearts. And I think oftentimes in churches growing up, there's a huge emphasis on debt being paid. And it's good, right? The cross is where Jesus pays for our sins by dying in our place. He's the substitute. And by doing so, he extends or imputes his status of righteousness to us. That is true, full stop. But the other dimension is not just an emphasis on guilt, walking around with shame, a feeling of being gross all the time, right? This debt that needs to be paid. It's also the fact that there's freedom. It's not just being paid, you're being invited into life and freedom. See, this rich young man, I don't know it. I mean, it doesn't highlight it, but I don't know if he was, he was being kept up late at night because he had riches, because that was the thing sitting on the throne of his life. See, Jesus honored his decision. Jesus, though, was inviting him into a life of freedom. Paying his debt, absolutely, but he was inviting him into a life of freedom. And the same is for us. He's paid the debt. His invitation is for freedom. A new quality of life, free from attachments or what has our hearts. So why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't, why couldn't God just forgive us, right? Like, just let it go, God. And I think about this, and this is a story I kind of, ripped a little bit from Tim Keller and just thought of like in my own life too. And my wife, Trisha and I were walking um, in Lucadia and there's a new restaurant and I think it might be closing down already, but it's called Weenie Hut. 
And so we were walking by Weenie Hut, you know, having a good old time. Um, and, and we saw this car just kind of zoom around the corner and spun out and then ran into this car right in front of us. Like for one, I was felt bummed for the car, but for two, I was grateful because that person could have totally hit us. And, and they didn't even stop. They hit the car and then started going. And I'm like, what do I do? So I ran out. I think I was like really tough. And I walked out. And I was like, hey, I yelled at the guy. I tried to take a picture. It was blurry. So I didn't get his license plate. So there's like crazy story. But I was thinking about that story. Like damage has been done. right? A sin has happened. Like brokenness, like things have happened. And the guy just drove off. And so imagine if you were the person who you were standing there. And that was your car that got hit. And so, you know, you call the cops and the cops come and, and there's a few things that could happen. One is, um, and if that person didn't get away with it, right, they, they got caught, they're, standing, they're sitting there and the cops are looking at the person. The person with all sincerity is like, hey, look, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I shouldn't have zoomed around the corner, even though I'm like a negligent driver and I shouldn't have hit you. I'm so sorry. With all sincerity. And the cop, what if the cop just looked at you and said like, yeah, all right, just forgive him. You're good. That's it, right? Just forgive him and, and you're good. And then they just get to walk away. No, I, I would be like, no, I want them to, they need to pay me. Like they have to pay for this. Like there, there's this sense of, and in that sense, we have vindictiveness, right? Like you have to pay because we're angry and upset. But we understand that because something has happened, there has been a wrong that's happened that a price needs to be paid. And, and there's no wrong that actually goes without a price or a debt being paid. Either it's paid by the person who hit you, or it's paid by someone else, insurance company, or it's paid by you. And maybe you're like, whatever, like I don't need a car. Well, then you just lost a car. It's still being paid by you. There's no wrong that happens that does not require payment ever. And so forgiveness is a huge problem. And it's actually a huge problem, especially if you're a loving person. You know, we say just, why doesn't God just let it go? Every wrong has a cost. It causes damage. And so either God pays for it or someone else pays for it or you pay for it. We can just let it go. But forgiveness is actually what it means at its core is bearing the wrong and absorbing the cost. Forgiveness isn't easy. There's a debt to be paid. And in that scenario, like what if you were even able to set aside your vindictiveness? You're like, you know what? I'm not mad at you. There's still a price that needs to be paid. Because the reality about God is God isn't vindictive, right? You don't see this throughout scripture where he's just like angry. He's a hurt puppy in a corner ready to bite and attack back. Like that's not who God is. He's a loving father. So he's not vindictive, but even still there's a debt to be paid because there's been a wrong that's happened. And so forgiveness doesn't just mean you can just brush it off because that wouldn't be good for the person who gets brushed off. Like if that person hit the car, it's not a good thing for them just to be let off scot-free because... Like they, they are now just going to do whatever they want to do. It's not good for society for that person to be let off because they're negligent in driving and they're just hitting everybody. But if you also love justice and for justice sake, because it's literally right or wrong, then you're an Enneagram one and you love like justice. It's not fair for justice sake. See, we all have a sense of justice in our hearts, which makes forgiveness hard. God's nature is the justice that we're all sensing. And the twist actually is, is the more loving that you are, the better that you are, the kinder you are, like the more benevolence that you have, it's actually more difficult and complex to forgive. Because it doesn't feel loving to punish the person, but it's not loving to just let it go because you care about justice. And so we ask that question, why wouldn't a loving God just let it go? Why did Jesus have to die? 
But if we, with just a much lower level of goodness and love, recognize the issue of forgiveness in the silly example by Weenie Hut, how much more for God? As good as He is, with all holiness and righteousness, how much harder? Forgiveness is a huge problem. It's a cosmic problem. We just kind of receive forgiveness. We say, this is cool, and we just kind of go off scot-free. But when we realize what it costs, a ransom for forgiveness, there's a complexity to the cross. We're complex with love, justice, and forgiveness. And when we flatten the cross and make it simple, which Paul describes it as a mystery, we lose the power of the cross. A God who just forgives isn't holy. A God who won't forgive isn't loving. And a God who can't forgive isn't wise. But at the cross, absolute wisdom, absolute love, absolute holiness come together. And this pays the price, but it also releases our hearts. See, Gandhi, Buddha, Eastern religions, which has actually a massive influence in Encinitas in our culture here, or if you even look at modern day psychology, there's actually a consensus that the normal state of humanity is that we are spiritually enslaved, or the words in psychology, we are stuck in our attachments or we are run by our ego. As a helpful tool, Enneagram, right? If you're an Enneagram too, you're like, oh man, you could even do loving things, serve people. But what all of these religions and what uh, what psychology does, they ask, why? Why do you serve? Why do you do that? And then you realize, oh, it's because I need to be needed. Oh, I need to be seen as successful. That's why I do all these things. Oh, I need to feel attracted to my relationship. I need to feel desired. And so when you get down to it, it's attachment. We need these things in order to be happy. Our egos are these bottomless pits that need affirmation in order to prove what we don't believe about ourselves, which is that we're valuable. Jesus saw the man and loved the man. He saw his value and invited him to release his attachments. An example of the cross alone, just saying, man, the cross is the example for you to live by. It can't do that. Actually, if you think about the cross as the example, if it's just an example and not actually something that Jesus did for us and changes our hearts with, it's actually crushing. Hey, go and live the cross every day. You're like, I can't do that. And this even says, for man it's impossible, for God it is possible. See, the thing is, if we see Jesus forgiving us, it becomes our story. So it's one thing if we're walking by the ocean and and I were like, hey, I love you so much. Like, I love you so, so much. I'm going to prove it to you. And I run into the ocean and just like drown, just to prove my love for you. Like, that doesn't, I'm a lunatic, right? Like, I have a problem. And that doesn't actually make you feel loved. That makes you feel really bad. But if you were drowning and I go out there to save your life and in the process you're saved but I'm drowned, sacrificing myself, all of a sudden it becomes your story. See, as an example, it doesn't make that much sense. It's cool, it's nice, it can make you feel good, but it doesn't change your heart. Jesus is out to change our heart. He liberates us. And once we realize that it's our story, not an example, that we are just racked with attachments, that we have other things at the center that are robbing our life, robbing us from freedom, that we are in spiritual slavery to, that we have to have in order to be happy. And it promises everything, but it doesn't deliver on any of it. If we live in that place and we realize that we need a savior and we realize Jesus has done it for us, all of a sudden we're liberated. We can be secure. I don't need that anymore to make me secure. 
I can sell everything and follow Jesus. I'm okay. I don't need to sit on the throne and have glory and power. I can serve and not be recognized for it. And that's not even just okay. That's awesome because it's actually what Jesus did for me. See, and it's one thing to hear affirmations of your life. You're beautiful. You're free. You're awesome. It just fills you with self-esteem for a second, but that quickly fades. But when you experience the love of God, when you experience this as your story, all of a sudden it breaks through your ego and it liberates you. And so the question is, how do we connect with it? How do we connect with this reality that Jesus gave his life as a ransom, paid our debt, and gives us freedom? The freedom aspect. He frees us to live a life, to become people of love, to live a life to bring his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, to live a life where we are set free from just needing and grasping, but to be fully um, open, to be fully released and content and non-anxious. How do we become like Jesus? And it goes back to the very beginning. Verse 15, truly I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, the rich man asked Jesus what he must do to experience this right-side-up kingdom. And Jesus did ask him to do something, but ultimately it was so that he would have an open hand that was released. He had his hands gripped, and Jesus wanted him to release so he has room to receive. See, the kingdom of God is not something we do, it's something we receive. And then he says, like a child. And I love that because we can actually look at a child and we can see things about what Jesus means. And, and so here's just two things. One is children, unlike this rich young man who felt like he could run his own life, children are completely dependent. They're helpless and they know it. <laughs> They're like, oh, help me. You know, like they're always asking for help. Hey, I need this. I need that. Like they're always just asking for things because they realize how dependent they are. God is asking us to be in a place of dependence. You know, releasing our attachments, it's not easy. Which is why he gives us his spirit to walk with us. He gives us community to do this with. He invites us in and then he also empowers us with his own death and resurrection to say, I know it's not easy. I'm going to go first. And as I go, as you walk with me, know that you will be okay. We can depend on Christ. To be dependent, to be helpless, to know that we, we don't actually offer anything. We can't bring our riches into the world to come. But here and now, we can say, God, I need you. And number two, kids expect to be accepted and loved. If you, if you ever are around a kid, right, there's like, hey, listen to me. Hey, look at me. Hey, let me just tell you about my day. And they just go on and on as if you really wanted, I mean, sometimes you do, right? But they never ask if you want to know about their day. They just assume you want to know about their day. And so Jesus is saying, assume that God cares about you. Assume that he loves you. Assume that because you can expect it. He loves you. And so he says, if you want to experience freedom in your life, come dependent on God, open-handed, and also expect God to love you and to be interested in in you. See, it's one thing to hear the story of the cross and know that he died, but it's another reason to know why he died. He died to give us freedom. And so that's my prayer, that we would step into this right-side-up kingdom, that we would experience freedom, that we would heed the invitations that are in this text, 
to release ourselves from our attachments, to release ourselves from this glory mindset and to receive like a child the beauty of the cross, the beauty of what Jesus did for us, to receive his, not just his affirmations, but the experience of what he did in our life. Let's pray. God, I just pray um, right now in the same way that um, we oftentimes have a tight grip on things in our lives. I pray that, um, that you help reveal those areas in our lives that maybe are attachments, things sitting on the throne of our hearts that are not you. God, that you don't just pay for our debt, but you free our heart. And I pray, God, for freedom in hearts. I pray that you not just highlight the area that's an attachment, the thing that's getting in the way of us having open hands to receive you and be dependent like a child, but that you give us the grace, you give us the strength, you give us the compassion to release those things to you. God, I pray that you help our hearts and even in our prayers to talk to you as a child talks to you, to know that you are interested in us, that you love us, to expect that you love us. And God, I pray that you just shift our perspective, that we would recognize the cross, the gospel. And I pray just for a big, bold thing, God, that it's not just something that's information that falls onto our thick skulls, but it becomes the transforming power of our lives. God, would you change hearts with your gospel today? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.